0: Hello. My name is Junius Williams. I'm the host for Everything's Political. And today our special guest is no stranger to politics. He is the 40th mayor of the city of Newark. Ras J. Baraka, his progressive approach to governing has won him accolades from grassroots organizations to the White House. With a forward-thinking agenda that reduced crime to its lowest levels in five decades, addressed affordability while maintaining steady growth, lowered unemployment, and returned local control to schools after more than two decades, Mayor Baraka has defied expectations since taking office in 2014. During this historic time, he is currently fighting for a myriad of social justice reforms while continuing to lead the city through the fight against COVID-19. And I'm glad to have him here today to talk about one of those social justice reforms and that's called the Newark Community Museum and Conflict Resolution Center. How are you doing, Mayor? I'm great, how are you? I'm doing good, glad Thanks. to have you. Uh, let's start with this question about the museum. Well. What impact did the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the calls for defund the police have on you as the mayor of the New Jersey's largest city?
1: Well, I just think that uh, it created a moment for us to expedite some of the things that we were thinking about for some time. The atmosphere and the climate was good to push the programs that we thought needed to be done. And, you know, at at that level, at that speed. And so we we took advantage of it and, and, and made them happen uh, during this time period. You know people began pushing uh, for these things. Uh, it's only right to make it, uh, you know, make it happen.
0: So you developed something called the Office of Violence Prevention. Uh, let, let me give a little background to the people out there. People were saying around the country, some people anyway, we need to defund the police. And you said, no, we need the police. But what we can do is to make sure that the community is engaged in creating a climate of nonviolence. And to start with, you set up this office for violence prevention. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, the the idea of public safety doesn't belong to the police. And we've given it to them for too long in our community uh, and uh, allowed them to have reign over whatever. Uh, was public safety? Whether they abused us, violated constitutional rights, they did whatever they did in the name of public safety, executed white supremacy, whatever they did under the name of of public safety, uh, and justified that to folks in our community because of the issues in our community of high violence, shooting, you know, all of these uh, things that go on in our neighborhoods that we know of. Uh, the over policing of our communities have been justified through those things, though. Nobody has really looked at the fact that while we've been over policing our communities for decades, we haven't even we have not seen a consistent downturn in violence and crime uh, because of that. Uh, we have not treated it as, in a holistic way as as public health. And what this office does is gives the responsibility to community members, to organizations, to folks in the neighborhoods to help create a climate of public safety and environment of public safety. That is not just in a police officer's hands so we can reduce the number of police officers that we actually need. So we can put a new idea in people's head that public safety comes from the development of of our community and not from the presence of cops. Uh, And that's really what the fundamental idea around that is. And uh, then we fund it with the dollars that would normally go to the police department, because, you know, if you go in our community, if, if people don't see the police, they feel like they're not safe because they, they equate safety with police. So if I go to a community meeting, the argument well, it would be, I haven't seen a cop on my block in two days, or one day, or 24 hours, right? And they argue with you about wanting to see cops. If you were in a suburban neighborhood, if they saw the police, they would think it was a problem. I just saw the police in my community. Is everything OK? Right? So there's a complete difference of how the police are viewed and what their purpose is, right? We look at the police for safety. Those communities look at the police uh, to solve incidents or problems that take place in, in their community. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a deep difference there.
0: So in addition to financing the Office of Violence Prevention from that 5% taken away from the police budget, you also said, well, we're going to have a museum. We're going to have a community museum. We're going to put it in the First Precinct, which is where the, the the actual home of the beginning of the, the Newark Rebellion in 1967. So uh, talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Well, yeah, I think, you know, well, I think art is a weapon, uh, you know, and culture is important. And I think the museum helps people to get perspective, make a connection between what happened in 1967 and what's going on presently and everything that happened in between those two dates, right? In between 67 and George Floyd and in this museum and what people in Newark have been doing. They haven't been sitting on their hands. There have been a lot of things going on in our community from the grassroots efforts. And I want people to be able to see that, relate to that. I want the kids to study it, look at it, and aid and assist them in understanding their city and then motivating them to begin doing something about furthering that change. And we picked the building there because I think it's appropriate you know, that that was the building that's known for where police violence created a rebellion in our city. Uh, and so to switch that around is not only symbolic, but I think that emotionally that it, it, it almost brings a little closure to some of the stuff, you know, that, that, that took place.
0: But why that particular precinct has that idea been received well in the community?
1: Well, the, the, I picked that precinct because that's where it began. Like you said, that's where, where it started. And I think that it's just like, like ubiquitous, you know, that that we turn that precinct into uh, a place of community recovery as opposed to community repression, that we took those buildings. And like when you seize power, you take the instruments that your enemies use to uh, put you down and use those as instruments to lift you up. And, uh, you know, that, that's the way I thought of it. So everybody in the community is is not completely happy about it, obviously, because of what we said earlier, uh, which is they think that the absence of police in their community is going to make their neighborhood that much more unsafe. And so we're we we obviously going to have patrols and do everything that we've been doing in that neighborhood around a police side, uh, and we're very conscious of that. But secondly, uh, you know, we have to get people to begin to have the faith and rely on themselves and our ability to solve some of these conflicts, to reduce violence, to create programming, to do the different things in these neighborhoods that helps us uh, stabilize communities and reduce violence. We, we have to begin that somewhere. And uh, you know so they're, they're, you're always going to be in the middle of that. And I always tell people, the, the biggest people that you're never going to hear about that's going to come at you about this defund police our our grandmothers and and aunties and so forth in our neighborhood and community who live in a city where they are being victimized or, or witnessing violence and trauma daily. Like that has to be addressed. If we don't address it, then it's really like we really running too far ahead of the people as opposed to running with them.
0: So your idea is to put the Office of Violence Prevention and the museum in the same building. How are that's they right. going to relate? How are they going to relate to each other?
1: Well, I just think that's the usefulness of that. When people come in to that office to deal with trauma, to deal with conflict resolution, to deal with a violence reduction, when youth come in there to, to try to like be redirected, I think that it is not only appropriate, I think it's therapeutic for them to be able to see the pathway that the people before them went through in order to get to this point and give them some understanding of how they got in this situation. That they just weren't born bad and evil. That there's some things going on in their community that created this environment and they're, and they're a part of people who've struggled against it. Uh, and they should join that uh, as opposed to joining the bloods.
0: Now from what you've already said, uh, I think it's fair to say that new stories will play a very important part in this museum and in that lesson plan you outline.
1: Yes, sir. It has to be.
0: Any particular stories that you're interested in?
1: There's a lot of stories, man. I mean, just just like some of the, you know, even the anecdotes of what was going on in the Newark Rebellion and the, the the reason why it started. I mean, some of the rent strikes and housing struggles and all of the things that took place in the city to let people know we just didn't lay down. That the projects didn't just appear and we took whatever people gave us. I mean, just the the displacement of folks, hundreds of folks, thousands of folks, uh, in our city. Uh, how 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 they got in them projects? What you know, and I think that will spark people to begin to think about how they even got there. Like how did their family get there? Like what was those buildings used for before we got in there? Were they built from the ground? Like what Terrell Homes, for example, what was that, you know, before we moved in there, right? uh and 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 where did we live when we first migrated here all all of those things i think it sparks people's interest even if it sparks three or four people you know to try to figure out their journey here and and their struggle in this community uh i think that it, it will be incredible
0: you think young people will respond to that
1: i think you turn the light on in anybody's head the the problem is trying to get the light on and folks have difficulty doing that, and I think using the use of culture and art and all these are very, very, very proven tools uh, to to attract, engage people, to get them to turn that light on. All you gotta do is do that. Once that's done, there's nothing you can do after that. You know, you know, when you when you first be figured out that there's something larger going on, I mean, it's just nonstop appetite for getting more information and more opportunity.
0: And you come from a very prominent activist family, uh, Amina Baraka and Amiri Baraka. Can you, when you were growing up in a kid, in that household, what kind of stories did you hear?
1: I mean, I heard, I heard stories about uh, the, the movement itself, about struggles between people in movement. I heard stories about the North rebellion, you know, um, of, of, of my mother running around the city trying to find out where my father was in the middle of the rebellion, having to call uh, folks in Europe to, you know, some of these famous writer, white writers to get them to call into Newark to find out where he was. Uh, the only thing that would have, uh, you know, got them to talk to her about where her husband was at the time. You know, uh, my, my brother uh, was born May 31st, 1967. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all you know, just those stories, you know, by themselves, and then, then my father, you know, talking about how he got hit in the head. You know, uh, they pulled him over, hit him over the head, and the guy that hit him over the head was a was a student. Was not a student. Was a student with him at Barringer High School. They went to school together there at Barringer High School. The cop there, and they said he had a bag of guns in the back of his truck, in mean, the back of his car, and uh, they read his poem in court as proof that he was an insurrectionist. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he he finally got that. Thrown out of there, but but ultimately they they convicted him of, of 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 riot and everything else because of that poem.
0: I remember going to your house when you were just a a little bitty little boy. See you running around. Uh, one thing I admired about the Baraka household is that they didn't try to keep y'all separate from what was going on. You you obviously didn't. We weren't that interested but uh you came downstairs sometime sometimes you didn't come downstairs and there was always somebody there of of interest uh, i i remember meeting max roach the great drummer nina simone uh, aminata Moseka, the the great jazz singer uh tell us a little bit more about that household
1: well yeah i mean you know my my mother and father they had events parties uh, meetings at the house all of the time, uh, you know, later on developed into Kamako's blues, people in the basement where they did poetry and jazz and blues uh, in the basement of our home. Uh, and so there were always writers and activists and artists and musicians throughout the house all of the time. And, and at some time got really lively, you know, at those parties with black beans and cornbread and collard grains and, uh, you know, all hours of the night, people getting up, dancing, preaching, singing, you know, doing all kinds of things. So it it was pretty interesting, you know, as a kid, you know, and your friends coming to check that out too. You know, you come in from playing football in the street and you got a whole house full of people, you know, to you at that time looking wild and strange and all kinds of stuff going on, you know. So that was, you know, and, and I get the same people you saw. I got to see those folks growing up. You didn't know who they were really until you became an adult. You say, oh, wow, these people were in my house. I didn't know who these people were as a child, but you know w- whether it was Mikey Pinero or Sekou Sundiata, you know, like you said, Max Roach, Anita Simone, uh, uh, any of these people uh, that 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 been in the house, uh, you know, from Maya Angelou to 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 all kind of folks. So,
0: I remember that there was a piano, not pushed up against the wall, but in the middle of the floor, right. and so whoever was there. Who could play the piano would sit down and play at that piano, and then other folks would join in singing or playing whatever instrument they brought at that time.
1: That's right. That's what they would do, have a jam session right there.
0: Right there in the spot. And then later on, we graduated. I should, uh, we, because I was invited sometime to come downstairs to uh, Kamako's Blues Place. Well, we we had uh, poetry jams as well as music jams. And, uh, of course, everybody wanted to hear your father read poetry. And he always liked to do that with uh, music. Yeah. So he had his music groups down there. What was the relationship with you and music growing
1: up? Well, WBGO played in our household all day long. Like, you woke up in the morning, WBGO was playing. You go to sleep at night, WBGO was playing. I don't think they ever turned WBGO off. It, it played in jazz and blues and Sarah Vaughn and Coltrane and Sun Ra and Bessie Smith. They played a lot of people. I don't know what the playlist is now that WBGO is like, but uh, back then, boy, they used to get down. And, um, you know, besides that, you know, my father and mother used to play the record. You know, the record player was a yeah, record player. and They played Good. the record and, and let them records play all all, all day. So. I mean, music was all in, in our house all of the time.
0: I always thought that your father wished that he could have been, in addition to being a poet, writer, short stories, novels, whatever. I always thought your father wanted to be a musician more than anything else. Yeah,
1: pretty much. You know, he, he loved Duke Ellington. Uh, you know, he loved Sun Ra. You know, I mean, he, he, he. He was even a music critic, you know. So, he uh, uh, he played the horn before too when he was younger. Like he played the trumpet when he was younger. So I don't know if he, I mean, why he gave that up. So so did I. In fact, in high school I played the cornet, mm. and, and I gave it up. So, but yeah.
0: So so, what is your favorite kind of music?
1: Wow, I mean, I I, I listen to all kind of music, man. I mean, I can't help but the love uh, Nina Simone and Curtis Mayfield and. All of that from from that time is just in me from growing up. I mean, those folks are on my playlist now. You know, Nina, Curtis, Coltrane, uh, Miles Davis, So What. I mean, all of that is on, on, on my playlist now. But also, I grew up in the city and was very inf- influenced by hip-hop. So, you know, a lot of the old-school hip-hop artists, you know, I, I listen to still, whether it's Run-D.M.C. or Eric B. and Rakim, a public enemy. I still listen to those folks right now, and that was my childhood music, my high school music, uh, and my college music that excited me into to action and activity. It was it was like the uh, you know the theme music of the time. You know, it was the motion picture in the background. You know, so that's in me as well. So it was a kind of mixture of of that kind of music that I like.
0: What about your mother? What role did she play? in that uh, in that milieu and in your life.
1: Well my my mother is the one who really told us most of those stories for the most part. My father would chime in, but my mother is the one who initiated that stuff, who, you know, took care of our household, obviously raised raised the family there, who always, you know, try to keep us focused on, you know, the movement, people, humanity, all all of those things, you know. Uh and she was the host of all of those things, that all of those events and parties. She cooked the food, she sung, she danced, she read poetry, and she made sure we went to bed when it was time to go to bed. <laughs> 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 that we wasn't sneaking downstairs way past the hours that we were supposed to.
0: <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah, I remember seeing some faces on the stairway kind of looking down. Uh uh-huh. Not necessarily because you had famous people, but because it was, a whole lot of noise going on in that that's, place.
1: That's exactly right. Whole lot of noise. Yep. And what I hated about it, brother, is when everybody left, we had to clean up that place.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whether it was inside or in the backyard,
1: yeah, we, had to, we had to clean it up. That's right. My mother and us, mother gathered us up, we got to clean up. Mm hmm. Yep.
0: role you talked about different kinds of music what what uh what was the influence you think of just being in the baraka household and the, the family experience uh how did that shape your desire to first of all want to be mayor and then secondly now that you are mayor how does that shape your administration
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, just the, the love of community, of people, uh, the fight for, for justice, all of those things. And, I, and and it has these things have different impacts and different effects on many people. I know many people's children who uh, grew up in the movement, part of the movement. And it just had different effects on them. Some people, you know, they ran away from it. They don't like it. I mean, uh, you know, it and, and that is because it wasn't all just dancing and singing, you know, there's also, you know, please break uh, people busting in our home. Uh, you know, you don't uh, get to enjoy the same things other kids get to enjoy. You got a funny name. You you know what I mean? You not, you don't celebrate the same holidays as everybody else. You're almost isolated. People treat you a certain way because of your father's politics and your mother's politics. Or, all of that stuff. And, and the time uh, for family is affected by all of that pressure that people put on. Uh, your family is is affected by that, uh, without a shadow of a doubt. And um, you know, just trying to understand that people purposefully you, you have to. And I think it, it affected me to to begin to study and read and understand why these things was happening, why they made a decision to be in the movement and do the things that have us at rallies and protests at eight and nine years old, right? Or why the police was bothering my father, or what, why they was. You know, why sometimes when they talk, they had to turn up the music in the house to have a conversation, or, you know, all these kinds of things was just for a child growing up, it's difficult, you know, uh, to understand uh, in any environment. I think me personally, it helped me to begin to read and study and try to figure out what the heck was going on. And then having conversations with my mother when I was in college, I would always have conversations with my mother and help me read certain books, watch certain movies, listen to certain things. And, uh, helped me come to the conclusion uh that this is something that I needed to be doing. And I think just the politics thing is simply, you know, us protesting and marching and always winding up in front of City Hall, you know? And uh, I was like, damn, it must be something in there. <laughs> why we always gotta come down here. You know what I mean? Like why do we protest and stay in front of City Hall? Like what are we coming down here for? And uh, you know, maybe there's something there we need to get. And I mean, just that like basic notion made me feel like this is we need to go do this. And, uh, you know, once I ran, I lost. I kept doing it because I think once I did it, I felt like I could do it. You know, and uh, we stayed in it until we actually won something. And, uh, you know, now that you're here, you realize even that the things that you were fighting for are a lot more complex than you even could imagine. And that your enemies are a lot more dangerous than you could even thought of. Right, and so yeah, the kind of strategy and other things that you need to do this is more than just a, a Friday night six o'clock meeting. You know what I mean? It is a lot of stuff, a lot of moving parts, a lot of things that you have to uh, just engage in to 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 at least get some of the stuff done you want to get done and push this thing just a little bit uh, further towards democracy. Um, and and that's what and that's what we try to do. and, and it's difficult because you have thousands of people that work with you and all of them don't believe what you believe. And that's fundamental. Like when you're in here, that's one of the fundamental contradictions. Like at the end of the day, you're trying to get people even to do stuff that they, they don't fully accept. And uh, so you're not just fighting with the powers that be out there to try to prevent that you fighting with your own folks to say, this is something that we should do.
0: That that brings up two memories. When uh, Ken Gibson got elected, the, Police on the chatterbox talked about him like he was a dog, but he signed their checks every
1: day. Every day,
0: every day. Finally, he—I uh, guess he got them to realize he wasn't so bad. But he also got some more police in here because at that time, the city was about ninety-five percent white police, and that's right. About ninety-five percent of that ninety-five percent lived somewhere else. So uh, that was a, a royal change in regard, so to speak. You didn't have to worry about that, though, did
1: you? Well, actually, when I came, it was, we were still in that situation. We were 95%. That's, like, absurd, right? But the majority was still not people, not black and brown folks. I think what changed was, you know, Corey had to lay off 162, 160-something 160 police officers because of the budget problem. Curry Booker. So when I came, I had the ability when we started fixing this budget issue to hire police officers. So we hired 500 cops since I've been here. And uh, now the police department is almost 80% black and brown and 22% women. People don't talk about that around the country, but I think that that has a lot, a lot to do with some of the stuff, why it's easier to make some of these changes. And and they're not police officers that are from out of off Mars, you know, these these are black and brown police officers whose families have some relationship or well, they still live here in the city of Newark.
0: How does your growing up ex- experience, how does that affect your conception of the museum that we've been talking about? In well, in the Baraka household and growing up yeah. in the time that you did?
1: Well, you know, in my house, there was books everywhere. So, you know, you go to the bathroom, there's books in the bathroom, books in the music room, books... Everywhere that you can't walk anywhere in the house and I see books, monuments, statues, pictures, pictures of my father with uh, John Coltrane, you know, a poem from Langston Hughes, right? All this stuff, you know, it's these are artifacts. And and you could just sit in there and look at some of that stuff, stuff that he brought from and my mother brought from all over the country, all over the world where they travel, they bring stuff back. And, uh, you know, that has a, a, a impact on you, whether you know it or not. You grew up in that environment. I mean, even even by osmosis, you're going to get some of that stuff. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the understanding of the relationship of art and development and culture uh, and academia is important. Right. I understand that uh, and the worth of art and, and understand that why we try to uplift it in the city, because we know that at, at the basis that people that art is helps people congregate, make people come. Uh, It is also, it's not just for social development, it's also for economic development. And uh, I understand that. And so that's why we talk about and use art the way we do. But also, you know, just the the time period I I grew up in and, you know, all the activism that I was involved in as a child, as a young person, uh, makes me understand the importance of it. Because I look at it like, what activated me? Like what made me feel like this is something you know I should do right because everybody didn't take the path that I took and, and there are a lot of people like I said everybody I know a lot of people's children uh, you know because we we know people's children because they was at our household right and sometimes we all got to play together you know and 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 you know we grew up in the movement together so uh, you know that other people took different paths and, and I understood, I, I I decided that, you know, activism is something that I should be involved in. And because of that, I understand uh, the usefulness of it.
0: How about your siblings? Are they as uh, oriented in the same way as you?
1: I think for the most part, like in one way or another, you know, um, I don't think that we, obviously we don't come to the conclusions on the same things all the time. But at, at the end of the day, I think, for the most part, they understand that uh, we need to move forward, like we need to struggle And then somebody get, you know, we gotta get out of this situation. You know, and I think that 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 depending on their age and the time that they grew up and what was going on in our family, it affected them in a different way. Like whether you talk about my older sisters or my brother Obalaji or some you know what was going on. My, my brother was born in turmoil. My oldest brother was born in the middle of turmoil. You know, Newark Rebellion. My mother was like, he was a baby, baby. You know he grew up in that time you know when when all of that was going on uh committee for unified newark was happening all that stuff was going on you know he was born uh 1967. you know i, I was born two years after that you know uh right before king gibson's election i was a baby when king gibson when they was organizing the campaign for king gibson and, and pulling together this black puerto rican convention so i think time period effect you know how how uh, the impact it had on 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 different children in, in our household, definitely, uh, and what was going on with my mother and father and their relationship and the city and all this other stuff.
0: <clears throat> now I want to salute you for what I found out about recently. You are building something called Kawaita Towers. Yeah. And Kawaita was one of those things that your father really wanted to do. Uh, we don't have time to go into all of it, but the yeah. – the the powers that be conspired to make that not happen, and you very quietly put that back on the agenda.
1: Yep, very quietly. The, uh, <laughs> and, and it's 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 not about you know my my mother always talks about like she's like having an issue with the with the work with Kawaida because what it the the memories that it elicits for her you know what I mean just uh, Milana Karanga the movement of the time the the the, the craziness that was going on you know, of the time, the issues that she had with him and in the movement itself with with, uh, Committee for Unified Newark, all of that, and it brings issues like that up and very valid and poignant issues uh, that need to be addressed. And she's a different person today than she was in 1967, 68, 70, when this stuff was going on, 70, 71, all this time. So her, her political views are a lot different than this. So the word Kawaida just elicits so much. And so, so, it's more about what happened, you know, that they were fighting for housing uh, in this community, and they refused, and they really used the power of white supremacy to prevent this building from being built, to divide the community, to to target individuals, to take tax abatements away from people, to deny people affordable housing, and they, and they did all of these things, uh, you know, with the help of elected officials. With their silence, with their with their fear, with their backing away, with their reversal—I mean, the council voted for the tax abatement; they voted to rescind it. That hasn't happened like that since then. <laughs> you know <what> <laughs> so, so, I mean, I think that it should stand. I think it should stand, and it's a part of us telling our story.
0: Absolutely, I remember that. I remember that turmoil. Well. I know what your mother feels, uh, but there's a whole different generation now. People say, "Okay, Kawita, that's just another one of those names that he uses." So yeah,
1: it's it's, it's the, the struggle, the fight, the momentum of that time. Where were we at, and what was going on? And our our kids need to they need to know the good and the bad, right? Mm-hmm. They need to figure out what's happening on their own. Sometimes we try to protect people from something, and we drive them right into it. And so we, we just need to point it out and say this is what it is and be honest about it. And the Towers, they would not let us build it. We see its power. Now we're going to build it.
0: So, where are the artifacts going to come from for the Newark Community Museum? And we have a very I was, fine. I was
1: hoping you can help us out with that, Julius. <laughs> but I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, i on the case. I'm on the case. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people out here who. Even have stuff in their household, man, that, that they could lend to this. and, and I mean, there are a lot of – I mean, I've already been – like, even when we did Kawita, I started getting videos and pictures and all kind of stuff that people send you that they just got. Look, this is what I had since then, a flyer, you know, all kind of things that they have up. Um, okay. I mean, rosasi got like a zillion pictures, man. You don't know this guy. He's been around since Methuselah taking pictures, so – He's got them.
0: I don't know what he does with all those pictures. He must have a a whole place where he just stacks 50 years worth of house uh 50 years worth of uh photos there. But yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, hold on to those pictures.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: We're yeah. gonna use them. We're gonna use them. Uh I am going to see, this is just a sidebar, y'all out there in podcast land. I'm going to see the people who who have uh kept Bernice Bass's tapes. Huh. Bernice Bass is, was the first black radio female journalist that we have, and she interviewed people from from, from Malcolm X to local folks to uh, you you name it. She she was there, and we're going to try to get some of those tapes, come digitize them because they're on reel reel. We're going to digitize those and put those in the, in the in the museum so folks can hear what she was talking about. You remember her, don't you?
1: Yeah. That should be good.
0: Quite a powerful lady.
1: We need all of that stuff, man. I think that those tapes, if we have tapes, or artifacts on the Black and Puerto Rican Convention, man. Uh if we have Hilda Hildago and all of the stuff that she was saying, all those people, they 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 I think people need to hear their voices and the things they were saying. Right. These people today that call themselves activists, elected officials, all these things, people should hear this stuff so we can see what these people were actually trying to do because I sometimes I think we, we got a, the wrong idea in our head about what was supposed to happen. <laughs>
0: yep. Yep. So, all right, folks out there, you hear it. If you uh got anything at all, get in touch with me. I'm not going to put it on the man to get that, get in touch with me and we're going to see what we can do about memorializing your, Bequest to the museum we almost finished here, man. I appreciate the time. Uh, when will the museum be open? Uh, I understand you have a date of July twelfth to launch the public information campaign about this yep. why why July twelfth
1: well we we uh, uh wow we we pushed we we, you know, we started having meetings. About the office and what it's supposed to, you know, do. We're going to continue to have those meetings. Uh, we want to push the, you know, the obviously the museum and 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 the importance of that. And you know, July, you know, Stevie Wonder said hotter than July, brother. That's the that's the <laughs> that's the song, you know. I mean, July is 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 when this thing, you know, jumps off when it jumped off around here. So I, I think that. Uh, all things happen for a reason, brother.
0: Well, I appreciate your time. Uh, this is this has been everything's political, and I'm very glad to have been hosting this series now of uh, of eight podcasts. This is the end of our first series, and so I want to thank some folks who have been working with me, Alexis McCoy, our logistics coordinator, Kelly Prempe, editor. Frankie Walls, social media coordinator. Kalina Berryman, kind of filling in as everything, calling her a consultant. Anthony Ant Jackson, who lives in Las Vegas, Nevada, but formerly from Newark, who did the original music that you hear. My own son, Che Williams, sound engineering and technical assistance. Also, thank you to the Terrell Foundation and the Center for Education and Juvenile Justice for sponsoring it. So getting back to you, Mayor, uh, thank you for being the uh, the cleanup hitter, so to speak. We're going to be back in September with more episodes. Uh, if you don't see me around, just remember that a Black man's work is never done. Let the choir say amen. Thank you. Bye-bye.